I utilize my prison sentence for everything I could get from it, you know, and anything I could get from it, I got from it. And so when I came out, I had a plan. And so as I was working, you know what I'm saying? The plan, I started to realize like really quickly how the system just did not support, you know, success like on the community level. Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. The Stranger reported that the lobby of Washington State Department of Labor and Industry displayed four paintings by political prisoner Leonard Peltier in 2015. Peltier, who received two life sentences, has been incarcerated for the last 41 years after being convicted of killing two FBI agents in a shootout at the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota between FBI agents and activists from the American Indian Movement. The paintings weren't controversial, but the artists turned out to be. After receiving complaints, the department ended the show two weeks early. Peltier sued, claiming that the state violated his First Amendment rights. Recently, U.S. District Judge Ronald Layton in Tacoma decided the suit can proceed. In his decision, quote, appeasing those who disapprove of a speaker or diffusing a controversy are not compelling government interests, unquote. Last week, we covered a hunger strike inside the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington, with imprisoned immigrants refusing meals and masks, while outside supporters maintained an occupation next to the facility. Over the past week, the movement spread to the Bristol House of Corrections in Dartmouth, Massachusetts. The BHOC operates as an immigrant detention facility under contract with ICE, and prisoners there have repeatedly complained of abuse by staff, lack of medical care and edible food, and exploitative prices at commissary. Almost 250 imprisoned immigrants staged a multi-day hunger strike in response, beginning on Tuesday. The prison administration has, day by day, falsely claimed that the strikers have given up, and it is unclear now if the strike is ongoing. Meanwhile, on the outside, new Occupy ICE camps have popped up outside of immigration prisons in Sacramento and San Antonio. The camp in Portland was evicted by police immediately after it was attacked by fascists. In Idaho, 364 prisoners were accused of hacking JPay accounts in the Idaho State Correctional Institution, Idaho State Correctional Center, Idaho Correctional Institution Orofino, South Idaho Correctional Institution, and the Correctional Alternative Placement Plan facility operated by a private prison company, MTC Incorporated. A JPay spokesperson said prisoners, quote, intentionally exploited a software vulnerability to increase their JPay account balances, unquote. They allegedly moved credits for music, media, and family correspondence to their accounts. The total credits taken add up to $225,000. Last night, on July 27th, at 7 p.m., 
around 40 Bloomington residents held a vigil for families separated by ICE outside the Monroe County Correctional Center in Bloomington, Indiana, criticizing both the national wave of destructive actions by ICE, as well as the complicity with these actions by local Bloomington government and businesses. By holding the vigil outside the county jail, attendees hoped to call attention to the relationship between the actions of ICE and the rest of the carceral apparatus. For example, the county jail in Bloomington is used to hold ICE detainees from the surrounding areas. The vigil featured two large banners. One asked passing drivers to honk if you want ICE out of Bloomington, which produced a raucous response from the community. The other called out Envisage Technologies, a Bloomington business, for their work creating training programs for ICE. The vigil began with one speaker sharing the long history of racialized violence inflicted by the U.S. government, before several speakers shared testimonies by people who had been separated from their family members by ICE. Another speaker then criticized the policies of Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton's administration, the mayor was in attendance at the vigil, particularly the money they've given to Envisage Technologies in order to convince the company to remain in Bloomington. The vigil concluded with attendees marching to Envisage Technologies' headquarters, pledging to remain committed to fighting against ICE and the rest of the carceral apparatus in Bloomington. In last week's episode, we introduced Jody Polk, who spoke to us about her time behind the prison walls and urged audiences to see the other ways that people are confined by society. Now, we hear more of Jody's story, about the relationship she built while on the inside, her transition to daily life after her release, and the organizing she's currently engaged in. Jody was a law clerk during her time in prison, and she speaks to the way that that impacted her time inside, including how it informed her relationship with the other women prisoners. These days, she works with the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. As we lead up to the national prison strike on August 21st, it's important to see the outside support systems that are in place for those on the inside and the ways that incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people and their allies are trying to make a difference. Here's Jody. My name is Jody Polk and um, I'm from Gainesville, Florida. I'm the executive director for the Florida Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls, and I'm also the Florida ambassador for the National Council. I'm very excited. As a formerly incarcerated woman in 2007, I was sentenced to eight years in prison, and during my prison sentence, I was um, a certified law clerk. I was certified by the institution, and so I provided legal assistance to incarcerated women throughout my incarceration, and I found that I was very good at it. I had always been interested in some form of law or legal profession before incarceration, so um, it was pretty awesome um, to be a law clerk. And so when I got out of prison, in my search to go to law school, that is when I really understood the lifelong consequences that came behind now being a convicted felon. So in the state of Florida, I was always told, you will never go to law school here. I was told to move out of the state of Florida, which is the only home that I know. And plenty of schools just honestly told me, don't even apply. So I got my associate's degree in paralegal studies and so in my quest to like get to law school and I wanted to go to the University of Florida, I started meeting organizations. I joined the campaign, um, the Florida Restoration Rights Coalition. I started fighting to 
restore voting rights to felons in the state of Florida. And I really began organizing around women's issues and it empowered me to not have to wait to go to law school to use like the passion and the legal experience that I had inside of me. And so um, I'm so excited to announce and especially to announce to every law clerk in every prison in the United States that we collectively this year won the 2018 George Soros um, Justice Advocacy Fellowship. And so with that fellowship, I have three goals um, around the law clerk program inside of prisons throughout the United States. And that will be to first look at how that current certification process actually meet the needs and the skills that law clerks have to use in the law library. Because most people just assume that law clerks are in there helping people to get out. But the truth of the matter is you're helping people with all of their legal issues, grievance issues. So rather it is a post-conviction um, um, issue to the reason why you're being there, if it is an internal issue, if it's you know visitation, parental, family, if it's losing your professional license, um, getting served a divorce. Now we even have people that are going to the law library trying to fight their immigration status. So empowering law clerks with the actual skills that they're gonna to need to be successful at the work that they're doing is important. And most law clerks are individuals who have extended, if not life sentences. So looking at the certification that we use to currently certify them, also building in continuing education courses because for the work that they do and with our laws always changing, it's not uh, enough to give someone not even a year's worth of training, put them in a position, leave them there for maybe the next 10, if not longer, 10 years, if not longer, um, in that position and not equip them with the skills and the tools and the information to keep learning. So I would love to build in continuing education courses for certified law clerks, for them to be able to stay up on what's going on in the legal world outside of the prison, but also to continue to sharpen their skills so that they could be useful tools within the Department of Corrections. And the great thing about continuing education courses is it doesn't have to just be legal you know, related. It needs to be around office skills, legal research and writing skills, restorative justice, trauma-informed care, um, domestic um, issues. So being able to bring in um, a variety of continuing education courses that educate those law clerks to be able to educate those who are incarcerated with them is extremely important to me. And then to build an advocacy network is the last goal so that when jailhouse lawyers and certified law clerks are being released back into their communities, they can link up with organizations on the ground who are doing work that would love to have them come and be a part of their organization where they can, one, practice their skills, two, use their skills to empower their community that is right around them that they live in, and to three, be able to get the support that they need in um, being able to pursue a career in law. Because even for me, it was so important to go to law school 
And I found out that I'm actually an organizer. You know, I still love the law. I still intend on going to law school. I do not plan on practicing law in the traditional way of what I thought it looked like, but it was organizations like Fight Toxic Prisons, Participatory Defense, the Florida Restoration Rights Coalition that allowed me to come into those um, spaces, even the League of Women Voters. You know, and to be who I am, because I'm not just wanting to go into law because I've been to prison that was in me before incarceration. So it's important to me um, that these people don't have to waste any more of their time, that we build a network that they can transition to upon release to support their vision as well as their goals and their needs um, in their communities. Yes, so very excited about it. Um, I just feel like the law clerk program is something that we don't think about. I think law clerks are an amazing pillar in the Department of Corrections. Um, they're people who not only do incarcerated people go to, um, they are people that even staff, you know, sometimes look at with respect. The law library is the first place that you go when you get to prison. It's often the place that you spend the most of your time inside of prison. So we want to make sure that we recognize these pillars for who they are and build them up to be able to um, transform the culture in the prison, to be able to be a support to those who are incarcerated and can support them um, throughout their sentence. As a law clerk, I am just so thankful. It it introduced me to more than just, you know, the law. I'm thankful for years to just go through Florida statutes and jurisprudence and cases and learn all of those skills. But more than anything, I was in constant relationship with women on the compound and in the institution, always in constant relationship with staff. So it gave me a space to be able to connect with people in a way that I didn't just see them as inmates, but I was able to see them as people. My law clerk experience also allowed me to not just be a woman's law clerk, but to be her sister, to at sometimes be a mentor. Um, more than anything, like with youthful offenders, I tell people all the time, when you think of prison in the most worst extreme way especially for a women's prison i think that the yo camp the youthful offenders camp has to be the closest thing um to that vision and so those young women would typically be removed from you know the adults so we didn't get the chance to like mother them support them connect with them and then they would just be encouraged and treated just horribly by um, officers so i always was so thankful that as a law clerk I was able to have that connection with our youthful offenders, even if it was just a few hours once a week. Um, standing at the death, um, Tiffany Cole is on death row right now at Lowell. Every Tuesday, I would have to go and see her as a law clerk and to stand at the door of someone who was waiting, who is currently still waiting to be killed, you know, but she would mentor me, you know, so like, resilience is what I discovered as a law clerk in addition to my love for the law. Um, resilience is what I found as a law clerk. And so in November, 
through my um, relationship with the National Council for Incarcerated Form and Incarcerated Women and Girls. I was invited to Boston and I was trained by Raj Jayadev himself from Silicon Valley's debug under participatory defense. And so what I loved about participatory defense is while we talk about criminal justice reform all the time, the courtroom was like the one place that they noticed that we hadn't been able to make way in, you know, rose into. And so I love that because you don't really start thinking about what happened in court as a person who was a law clerk until you get to prison. And it's like, now we want to fight our case, but we felt completely silenced and had like no choice even in the courtroom. So participatory defense is a community organizing model that wraps around the loved ones that have people that are going through the justice system and so what we do as organizers and community volunteers is we attend the court dates with the family members to show that the um, defendant and their family has community support uh, we will go out and we will locate witnesses if we need to. We will talk with witnesses. Some participatory defense hubs actually have such a close relationship with their um, public defender's office that they've learned how to prep witnesses. And what we found is that because we are not attorneys, we actually have more access in the courtroom and outside of the courtroom than attorneys. And we know we're trying to tear down this system, but until we tear it down, it's the only one that we have. Public Public defenders are typically get a bad rap and we talk a lot of stuff about them, but until people stop going to jail or until we're able to abolish the current system that we have, especially black and brown people, we depend on public defenders when we go inside of, you know, get arrested and go into the, the system. So with participatory defense, it's not that we are partnering with the public defender but the way that it worked is we ended up empowering the public defender's office we're able to hold them accountable we're able to work with them to be able to fill in the gaps because they are overworked they don't have a lot of funds and so we're able to humanize justice in the courtroom we also do social bios for the person who is in um, going through the justice system which we can bring into the court whether it be for a bail hearing to advocate for a lower bail, a bond or we could use the social um, bio in their sentencing process to be able to ask for mitigation. But the most important thing is it shows that person as a person to the judge and not just a defendant with a number who is just waiting to be sentenced. So a social bio can have letters, if not videos, from community members who've had relationship with this person. It could be letters from their children actually written in their own handwriting, um, or we do do videos as well. And when I went to Boston and found about um, participatory defense, it was amazing to me being from Florida because we have a Department of Correction and we have a legislation that really um, holds a lot of people with minimum mandatory sentences. So in the state of Florida, you can literally go in front of a judge and it may be your first time, second time, and you can walk out of there. If you've been to prison before, not only will they habitualize you, they're going to um, enhance the actual sentence from a first to third degree, you know, to a second or a second to a first. So a a third degree felony could easily turn into a second degree felony and then put a mandatory cap on it. So to me, participatory defense allow us to be able to look at our brothers and sisters who had already been previously thrown away by the court system to see how we can support them. Um, in the state of Florida, we are now up for re-election of our governor. And so 
I'm very eager to see what type of governor we get next. If that person's going to support commutation of sentences, which is typically forgotten, um, and to see how we're able to support even from the inside of prisons out. But participatory is just defense is amazing. And the last part, what I love about it is, um, well, two more things that I love about it is that we're actually in the courtroom. So we're not just saying our courts are biased, our courts are racist, our courts have prejudice. But because we have that presence inside of the courtroom, we can communicate the practices of our judges and our court in a way that is solid and in a way that truly represents um, what's going on inside of the courtroom. And then we actually meet with families once a night, once a week, um, a night once a week. And so those families come in and as they're fighting for their loved ones, they're also building that relationship amongst one another. So not only are we saving time, but we're actually building like relationship and community and we're connecting people, you know, um, around issues that are critical and important to them that typically just get ignored. We talk about recidivism all the time. And so even like when you're inside and you see people come back, you're like, what's wrong with them? Oh my goodness, look at them, they coming back. And oh, if I would, when I get out of here, I'd never come back. So I utilize my prison sentence for everything I could get from it, you know? And anything I could get from it, I got from it. And so when I came out, I had a plan. And so as I was working, you know what I'm saying, the plan, I started to realize like really quickly how the system just did not support, you know, success like on the community level. And so even though I got into college, I got my kids back the first day that I got out. I got married. I even married a white man. You know, it just felt like the safest thing to do. I found a job within my 30 days because I had that plan. Like I got out and I got everything that you say a successful returning citizen should have. I had all of that and I still found myself. I even had my own apartment crying daily saying I wanted to go back to prison. I wanted to go back. Those relationships on the inside was more meaningful to me than any, you know, than the relationships on the outside, especially when you, for me, growing up in an environment that supported just a lot of poverty, growing up in poverty, substance abuse, crime, violence, and all of that stuff, that's how my, my community remembered me. That's how my mom remembered me. It has been one of the biggest struggles. I've been home now a little bit over four years of reintegrating with people on the outside, especially people that I knew prior, because people remember you a certain way. And it's like, now I walk in freedom and uh, trying to identify, you know, with people who don't have that is hard. You know, it is my love for self and my understanding that I get to, you know, choose in my own life that gives me freedom. And in our communities, people don't have that. We're so caught up on government assistance. We're so caught up on generational, you know, poverty. We're so locked into substance abuse. We're so locked into lust and sexual abuse. We're so incarcerated in our communities that we live that way. So for me, living in a incarcerated community after defeating an incarcerated, you know, situation is hard. That is a, a tough one for me. It's still my number one challenge of building those relationships, especially with children. 
I've never been a child. I grew up so fast, you know, and it's like they were taking my kids. I went to prison when they were babies, still in diapers. So to get out, not be around any children in that situation, my kids didn't get taken. So it wasn't a court or anyone to decide if I was capable or not. Those kids was thrown in my lap. I had no skills, you know, to be a parent. I had learned to be selfish in prison. I'm in love with self. I'm, I know what makes Jody work. I'm good with Jody. So learning how to be a mom to my kids, uh, learning how to renegotiate relationships with people from before incarceration has been a big challenge for me. And I can see why a lot of people choose to go back even when we don't say it and physically choose that longing in the heart to be with those who look like us, remind us of us and create that safe space for us is real. It's very real. Ramona Brent was pardoned by President Obama and one of her visions, she recently passed away, and one of her visions was to have like a listening tour uh, for formerly incarcerated women and to just have a space that we could all come into and really dig into how are we going to end mass incarceration of women and girls. And so the National Council, we are going to honor her wish. And so on July 21st, we will be having a national town hall um, across the United States for formerly incarcerated women, where we will be coming together to discuss how we're going to collectively organize and make the next steps to actually come through with our declaration to end mass incarceration of women and girls. And then on September 28th through September 30th in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, we're going to be having the Free Her Conference, which is just an, an amazing opportunity formerly incarcerated women and allies to come together and to be able to strategize, but also connect and build out, you know, that sisterhood. I didn't even realize how incarcerated I still was until I joined the National Council. And in February 2017, they flew me out to New York. I had never left Florida, never been on a plane. I said I'd never get on a plane, but it was that moment of you say you want something, how bad do you want it? And I stepped out on faith. I got on that plane. I went to uh, Manhattan. We convened on top of the Google building the first night in New York. And I was surrounded by thousands of women formerly incarcerated who were bold, confident, badass, and I mean, they were attorneys, some of them. Um, Tara Simmons is one of my sisters. She fought in D.C., and now she's practicing law. I mean, they were leaders, organizers. They were just like the beautiful buffet of like everything I wanted to be, and they were screaming, free her free her and talking about ending mass incarceration of women and girls and that's in that moment when I knew I'm not free until my sister's free how can I be free if they're not free and I joined you know the movement so I think it's important I never understood sisterhood I never understood that there's a power in sisterhood I'm all the way in Florida and now I have sisters in states all over the United States and we're so connected even right now talking with you about the National Council and feeling the energy of my sisters it is safe you know it is empowering and I think more formerly incarcerated women need the opportunity to pull off that mask 
and to be able to step into a space where she can practice being who she is until she feels comfortable being herself in community. Because until we end incarceration from the inside out, no amount of physically tearing down any prison system is going to make, you know, a difference. So I really encourage formerly incarcerated women, if they can, to make it to the conference in Oklahoma, reach out to the National Council. Um, They typically have some scholarships to support women who may not be able to get there on their own. And more importantly, to our allies and our supporters for organizers, organizations, you know, um, even if you're not directly impacted, reach out to the National Council, www.thecouncil.us, and sponsor a woman to be there so that she can be able to not get someone else's power, but to cultivate her own power and to be able to use that power um, in the community that she lives in to do the most good for not just her, but for her children, you know, for her family and for the community around her. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. Or, you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.